Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Higher Points Podcast. I'm Nick Sowers. I'm here in the studio with my buddy Nate Hyatt, as well as what I would consider our special guest, Bill Howard. And uh, Bill and I met through a leadership training that I was attending, and then he was an instructor, and uh, we just kind of hit it off. And also listening to some of his story uh, through, he and I have had some similar life experiences when it comes to kiddos and, and just life and also being a law enforcement officer. And I'll let him get into more of his history. But one of the things that really, I guess, clicked with me with Bill was he was different than other instructors. He kind of had like a piece about him and a, uh, I guess, a little bit of a, a stoicism that just kind of made me respect and kind of gravitate towards him that, you know, normally in law enforcement, you'll get those super type A personalities that it's kind of my way or the highway, or I'm the high speed, low drag. I'm the, I'm the top dog of this, of this thing. And it was really cool to see your instruction style was, was different. And it was also kind of more of rather than me talking at you, it was more of like talking with you. So through all of that is kind of how I came to know Bill and then listening to some of his stories, I was like, man, I, I we really got to have this, this gentleman on the podcast. It's so here we are. And we're how, how long in the planning of doing this? Like we, we've been, it's been a while, a few months uh, of just trying to find a time that works. And, and then the time that did work, we were kind of off on our times and, but we're mm-hmm. here, we're here, yeah. we're going to get it done. So Good. we always just kind of start in on, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're born, where you grew up, family, anything you're just kind of comfortable with sharing, and and, and uh, we'll move into the conversation from there. Well, thanks for the intro, Nick. I appreciated that, and I appreciated you in class. I called him chief right off the bat because you could tell this guy's going places, so, <laughs> and uh, don't edit that out, mister. Uh, my history is I'm I'm 58 years old. And uh, I was born and raised in Kansas City, Kansas, and that is my home community. And I, I lived there most of my life. Um, my folks divorced when I was fairly young, and so we went with mom. And mom moved us out to Springfield, Missouri for about three or four years, where I became a Helligan at a young age <laughs> and uh, definitely was doing my own thing And at, at, at the age of 14. I came back and lived with my dad in Kansas City, Kansas, and went to uh, Central Junior, graduated from Wyandotte High School in 82. Um, Dad got me on the police department back then. Nepotism wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing because you followed your father's footstep if he was a good dad. I always respected my dad. My dad was my hero. He became a cop in 1970. And he was on the nightly news several times. Uh, he got several Valor Awards and shootouts and was on the nightly news for chases and different things that he did. So, of course, I admired him, respected him. There was also this mystique about him I just didn't understand because he didn't talk about his work. But every now and then he would come home with a ripped uniform. Well, I remember specifically one time as he came home and his uniform was on the ground by the washing machine in the in the basement. And it was soaking wet and blood-filled. And I woke up to that that morning, and I was astounded. And, uh, of course, I ran upstairs asking what happened to Dad, and he wasn't even home. Turns out that he <clears throat> rescued uh, two people from um, an overturned car in a, in a creek that was uh, high water, this, uh, in, in a heavy downpour, the car had flipped off a bridge, went down, 
he was able to save an elderly woman and a child in a child seat, and the driver expired. But he pulled him out from under that car, and I just, you know, that's the kind of guy my dad was. He was fearless, and he was he was a true hero of mine. So, in 82, I graduated from Wyandotte High School. I became a police cadet, and uh, as I said, my dad got me on, and I followed in his footsteps, went through that process, um, became a police officer sworn in 1985, and was uh, did a lot of things as a sworn officer, uh, starting with undercover work and then working the streets a lot in Kansas City, Kansas. Back then, we had crack cocaine. It was just hitting the streets, Kansas City, Kansas. We had 30 crack houses open up in a weekend out of the blue, and they needed more help. And I was fresh on the streets, and nobody knew who I was yet, so they pulled me in there, and I started working um, um, as an undercover officer. Did that for about 18 months, and it just wasn't for me. Had a lot of close calls, a lot of things. That I felt too vulnerable, but they got their money's worth out of me. I did a lot of work there. And then <clears throat> I went back to the streets for a while and had a lot of fun with gravitating towards some of the assignments that were um, high-speed, low-drag, and then ended up on the SWAT team. I uh, did that for three years until I got promoted to detective. Did that for 10 years, five years homicide. Um, after that, I promoted to captain reluctantly. And then my last four years at Kansas City, Kansas, I was a major. And uh, I'm very grateful for the career. It was, it was a wonderful career. It was a wonderful place to work. I was treated so good over the years and you know there's just a cast of characters around me that just helped me and got me to where I made retirement so I retired from there in 2018 and then went back to work in 2019 and uh, that's where I'm at are you are you married and have kids yes how many kids you have I have three by birth and then two that we adopted well we didn't adopt them uh we fostered them it was uh my wife's niece and nephew and then uh so out of all those things that you uh, uh you did which look today in today's day and age like pulling somebody out of the academy and put them in undercover is kind of like unheard of i guess a little bit Would you well i was agree? on the streets less than a year yeah so well, are, are they still doing is that something like they would do in kansas city again because you're unknown or? probably yeah. Yes. Um, we have a relatively small unit. It's run totally different. I, I was able to command that later as a captain and as a major. And I made sure that they weren't exposed to the same type of uh, um, dangers that I was. So what we did when I was on the streets is we did hand-to-hand buys. We, had, we would have a CI that would introduce us. And then we would take over the controlled buys from there. But, you know, we would... Initially, we used confidential informants, but we were handing them so many cases that yeah. the DA said no more. <laughs> no more because these guys aren't testifying, and now the prosecutors can't call the CIs to testify. The There was one or two good, sharp attorneys that figured out it was the same CI making all the buys. Yeah. And then they just wanted to expose him. And so we couldn't expose him, so our DA said hand-to-hand only. Well, since that time, technology has advanced, and you can do all kinds of things to record hand-to-hand buys, right. which I won't give here. But uh, rest assured that, you know, when we got that technology and I was in charge of the unit, we would 
we didn't prohibit hand-to-hands. We highly discouraged them. And we used our CIs again and made it safe. Well, it seems like those hand-to-hands would probably be your most dangerous because if you've been made, then that's when they're going to probably look to get you or be if they wanted to, uh, if they wanted to, um, like shake you down and like get money from you or beat you up or whatever, like that'd be the time to do it. So is that why you kind of shied away from the hand to hand and wanted to use the CI stuff more? Yeah, specifically because not that I was burnt as an officer, but that, um, they were starting to do pat downs in these crack houses and they patted me down and felt my little 380 Beretta on me that I uh, had in my jean jacket. And then they put a 22 to my f- forehead and um, threatened me and thought I was there to rob them. So, you know, they, they would have no problem killing you, you know, if they thought that you were there to hurt them or rob from them. So were you uh, married at the time? Like when you were doing no. the undercover stuff? Okay. Do you think that would have factored into your decision-making? Had you... Sure. Or were you new enough then that you didn't really care? Sure. Um, I cared. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, being single, you know, gave me an advantage, I would think, uh, um, to where I didn't have to worry about others. Yeah. Um, so out of all, all of those things that, uh, that you've accomplished in your career... Of, and all those different units, which was your favorite and which do you think you grew the most from? Those are two different questions. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because, That's, I wanted to give you both of okay. both options. It's, not, both it's options. not the same answer. <laughs> um, my favorite was the Fugitive Task Force where I worked with uh, um, a lot of guys with the FBI in Kansas City, Missouri. I worked with uh, Craig Arnold, who was a personal mentor of mine and um, you know, I presented him in our class yeah. material. Um, he was he was the FBI guy, yes. that, like wrote a book and everything like that too. Yeah, right? he's yeah. he's one of the most highly highly decorated uh, FBI agents, and I had the honor and privilege of working with him. And he took me under his wing and showed me a lot of stuff. He came here from New York, and uh, he he had been on the violent crime squad in New York. Him, Doug Spillers, and Donald Albrecht. They all came here at the same time, pretty much the same time, and uh, they carried on what they were doing there here. But they ran one hell of a an operation as far as uh, fugitive task force, and these guys were all SWAT. And um, their bo- their boss Bob Wisman was uh, he's no nonsense too, and he we, we always got our man. I mean, we were really good, and uh, I credit I credit it to their leadership. These guys were senior. FBI agents and um, man, they did good work, and that was my favorite high-speed low drag. And I would compare it to getting up and going quail hunting because we would all get our shotguns, stand outside, have coffee, get our shotguns ready, and then go hunt. And uh, we didn't hit many birds, but we at least <laughs> went out and looked for them and found them. And uh, it was a lot of fun the way we worked together. You know, if you ever get into one of those units where everybody just knows what everybody's going to do and you just gel, that's what it was. It was just, it was great. Had, um, Mike Bailey and Jeff Wishard, KCMO guys, uh, KDOC, I just want to give a shout out to those guys, Vic Harshberger and John Sled. Those guys were were amazing. Uh, just did, Just presented new problems every day that we solved. It was wonderful. So for those listening that don't know, what does a fugitive task force do? We <clears throat> we look for the guys that have the violent crime uh, warrants. 
So murder, rape, robbery were the were our focus. And the the FBI, what they did for us is they got us into a task force where we were commissioned to go on both sides of the state line because Kansas City, Kansas is right there. It's a border state. So we could jump over to Missouri or we could go to another county like Johnson County and we could go hunt them up so that they couldn't hide from us if they stayed locally. And uh, we just had ways of finding them. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, considering you don't have to, like, for instance, when you work like a beat or a street, you're a street cop, you have to show up, you have to ask all these questions, you have to establish probable cause, and then maybe you can mm-hmm. arrest somebody. Whereas yours is like, I got this little piece of paper, and it just says you go to jail, end of story. Like, you don't have to do any. You get basically all the fun without all of the back-end kind of work that goes with it, well, it seems. Yeah, yes, but there's a lot of back work that has to be done. I mean, as far as you even being eligible for that unit, you have to have a lot of experience. Like, I was a detective. Uh, I'd worked homicides for a long time, <clears throat> so I knew how to investigate. And then I'd been on the SWAT team, so that, that was taken into consideration. And I was tenured. I had to, over 20 years on. So. so what do you think was the one you, you grew the most from of, of all the places that you served throughout your career? Hmm. I would say my brief time in as a homicide commander, um, I would say I grew the most because I was presented with a lot of challenges and, um, uh, and both, you know, I talk about managing up and managing relationships across and managing down subordinate wise. I had a lot of challenges with all three of those. So I grew the most out of that. So when it, when it does come to your management, one of the things we, we love to focus on on this podcast, A, is mental health. B, is entrepreneur and leadership. Like those are kind of our, like our bread and butter, I guess, of what we like to do. So what are, what are some of your like management philosophies? And obviously what got you into like teaching this in the sense of, you know, how, how did you like to manage people? How did you like to manage throughout the course of your job? Like what did you feel management of? you know, subordinates as well as even, uh, you know, you can lead up the chain of command too. Um, how, how did, how did you handle yourself when it came to just your general management principles? Like what were your philosophies? Hmm. Well, they change over time. You, you know, I went into it with the idea of I'm going to lead, you know, I'm going to lead men and women, you know, and, and they need leadership by gosh. And I had some opportunities to do that right off the bat. Where, you know, I was successful right off the bat in, in a couple of things where we had some task force. We had a drive-by shooting task force. We had a robbery task force that we threw together and we caught those guys uh, pretty quickly. And then um, there were several things that, that right off the bat I was able to 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 have some quick quick wins. And that's important for your confidence as a new leader. But, man, over time... Over time, you just you, you're just figuring it out. Um, I, I don't know what my philosophy was, other than I just don't want to sink here. Well, that was my next question: was do you, did you just feel like your time in leadership was just treading water? Like, what am I going to get myself into today, or <laughs> or what are my people going to get me into today? <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> yeah, all that's true. Sometimes, um, I think you know, um, I think initially out of the gate, you start out probably too soft 
and then over time you probably move into more of a rigid uh, mindset to where you know I've been at this a while you're you, you know you're you're gonna do what I say you know but when you initially get into it I mean there's a lot of pushback and you know you're kind of soft and where that all changed for me was when uh, we lost two officers in one night and what happened was we had an officer. I think I talked about this in my class. We had an officer that went through a divorce and his name was Kyle Kovac and Kyle was uh, just one of my favorites. Uh, he was working undercover, 24 year old kid. He was bright. He was a great athlete and he had a master's degree from KU. So we're talking about a person who's got his life together, but his personal life was in chaos as are a lot of cops, we can handle other people's problems, but it's we sometimes struggle with handling our own. Well, he was seen crying the day that his wife, well, the day that his divorce was final, and he had a new child that he hadn't spent much time with because she was pregnant when they divorced. And he went out drinking. Uh, one of his buddies from the academy and him went out drinking, and he was intoxicated, and he left the bar, and he rolled his... Uh, SUV and his buddy got flipped out. Mark got flipped out of the car and the car crushed him and killed him. And uh, Kyle just couldn't live with that. And Kyle went home and just killed himself. And that changed everything for me. I mean, I started looking at my roles so much different from that moment forward. You know, we didn't have um, peer counseling and all those kind of things. We were trying to get him. In fact, Craig Arnold from the FBI, he was one of the leaders of that, and he helped bring that to our police department. But this was after Kyle died. So we're trying to manage this situation with peer counseling, and, and we don't really have anyone really trained to do that. It was difficult. And um, so, you know, you talk about mental health, and I'll just tell you that, especially in bigger cities, cops are... Um, they have PTSD and it's secondary trauma. It's from witnessing all the different crime scenes and having to calm down people. Um, all of that's trauma. And um, it's only recently been even named and, and cops are being diagnosed with it. So sort of what happens with, <clears throat> with cops is, uh, you know, I want you to picture that you're a boxer and that you go in a boxing ring and you get hit 30 times in the head. Uh, now, not any one of those would kill you. But over time, if you keep doing that, you're going to have brain damage. And that's what happens to police officers, especially if they don't get a break from the action. And they're constantly pulling dead babies out of cars or fires. Or they're uh, having to be the bad guy in all these situations and arrest people and throw them on the ground and get spat on. And um, There's a secondary trauma there. I mean, where they're not the actual victim of the trauma or they're not maybe the focus of the trauma, but they're absorbing it. Just like those jabs. They're getting a jab every time they see something. So they have this this trauma that they're focusing on, so they take that home. And they try to self-medicate instead of talking to people. So when I when I was young, even as a cadet, we could drink beer. So I would go to what we called choir practice. And we would, we would uh, self-medicate. And uh, unfortunately, that turned into a lot of alcoholics. But for the most part, guys were getting things off their chests so they wouldn't take it home and take it out on their kids 
and their, their wives and family. So I, I viewed it overall as a healthy thing. But, you know, just like Kyle tried to do that, and he didn't make it home. And uh, it was tragic. And Kyle was, he, he was one of those kids that would probably be a deputy chief right now had that not happened. And so his whole life was destroyed uh, from drinking. So, so um, man, that was, that was pretty heavy. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Uh, kind of, I was so ingrained in that. I was like, not even thinking about what the next question would be. Well, you shouldn't be. Um, you should be just thinking about what I'm saying. I am. Yeah. I am. That's what I, that's exactly teasing. it. <laughs> but, but, uh, you, you know, one of the things like when it, I guess like, let's, uh, one of the things I really wanted to ask you more about in, uh, in the leadership class was you, you were putting together one of the tasks, task forces that you had, you had a chase happen where, the gentleman bailed out of the car, ran the guy down, and you put him in for commendation. But, oh, yeah. but as a result, I mean, there, there's more complexities to this yes. story. But just to make a complex story simple, right. you ended up having to write said person up along with the commendation because he went, what, the wrong way down a one yeah. way during a, during a pursuit, which was a violation of a general general order. Right. So to me and and also uh, it was interesting cuz when you and I talked on the phone the other day and I told you like I could chase for a tag light out if I wanted to cuz that's like my policy and you said oh goodness gracious that's a lot of rope a lot of rope you know and I could see you as a as a you know a commander of going oh my goodness what <laughs> what right. and and so I wanted to ask you about more about that <clears throat> dichotomy sure of so how, as a leader, did you sit down at the table and say, good job, but here's your write-up? Like, how, mm. how did that conversation work out, and how did you, how did you do that? How did you, mm. like, progress through that? I mean, I know that that was a subject of contention for you because you did not want to do that. That's not at all what you wanted from the situation. And Nick, it sucked, and I was forced to do it by my major. And the major was being influenced by the sergeant, who I had overridden the sergeant. The sergeant had said, uh, no go, don't chase that car. Um, but I, uh, I've i never done it before or since. But I said, no, in this case, you need to go ahead and engage. And what it, you know, just the backstory very briefly was it, we'd had a series of drive-by shootings. Some of them resulted in a couple of murders. And I'd gone to a big meeting that day. Uh, we called it CompStat, but all the facts were in CompStat. I, um, I brought that information back to roll call. We distributed the information on roll call so the officers knew what kind of car they were looking for, but we didn't have a tag. And we had another drive-by. So the officer doesn't get to the house but he's near enough to where he could almost hear the shots. And as he's arriving to that block where the shots had gone off, cars leaving. So we're getting calls from all kinds of neighbors, shots fired. It's a drive-by. Mm -hmm. Same MO. We're a small town. Same people are doing the stuff over and over again to each other. So he engages the car and he gets told to, uh, terminate and I say negative engage. And when you say engage, you're saying like pursue, like a yes. pursuit, right? Okay. And, and he did. And he caught, he caught the person in a heroic fashion. And the, what I mean by that is, um, Glenn Carter, it, he, he was a military guy and he was very brave. 
young man and I had a good relationship with him. I really trusted him. And I also knew about him as he was a tremendous athlete. He was a college runner. And uh, I knew his dad. I worked with his dad. His dad retired a captain. He was a great kid. Anyway, so he chases this guy down. And before the guy could get the gun out of his his, uh, waistband, Glenn wraps him up and traps his arms. And as I, as I understand it, takes him down like in a, in a tackle and drives him into the ground and cuffs him before anyone else gets there. And this guy is a murderer and he does it solo. What kind of guts is that? Yeah. What do we, we give those people a valor award Mm -hmm. and he didn't kill the guy. Many of us, because first of all, we can't run like Glenn. <laughs> uh, many of us would have stood back and maybe thought about, "Hey, we need to pop this guy because he's going to murder someone else." Mm-hmm. Glenn just and sometimes depending on the fact pattern, yes, know, Tennessee versus Garner that 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 is something that is. Oh, lawful. we did it. Lawful. We did it. Yeah, we did it one time. I could tell you about that another time if you got time. But um, anyway, um, so Glenn did what I thought was above and beyond, and took this guy down. Has him in the back seat when I get there. And um, is telling the kid, you know, why did you run from me? What what did you think you were going to accomplish? You know, it's just lecturing him, preaching to him, you know. Anyway, um, turns out Glenn had gone the wrong way on a one-way for one or two blocks. And it was all captured on the dash cam. And one of the sergeants caught it and brought it to the attention of the major. The major, you know, was, was very black and white back then. Thou shalt not. That was our general orders. Thou shalt not. And that just, you know, that was that was the Bible, man. So <clears throat> what we were supposed to do is never go the wrong way down a one way without permission. And, and a lot of officers had gotten a day off for that. So, you know, the major was just doing what the major does and says, hey, you know, there's no exception. I'm like, what? This is exceptional. We can't look at all situations the same. He was very prudent. Did you forget that I'm the one that told him to chase that car? And, you know, so what I'm saying is in the back space where he couldn't see me, I was fighting for him. But ultimately, that was delivered down to me to hand to him. So I hated it, but I did it. And he accepted it like a man because he was a real man. And then I handed him a copy of the memo of the Valor Award and just said, hey, I wrote you up for a Valor Award. And he ended up getting a Valor Award. I don't know how 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 that's possible. It should have never happened like that. Um, I'm very discouraged by having to have done that. But what came from that, what Glenn doesn't know, what came from that is the next chief that came through was Terry Ziegler. And I, I talked about that to Terry Ziegler. Randy Means training taught us. Randy Means is an attorney who teaches police departments how to issue discipline. And I went through his one-week course. I think it was 40 hours. And Randy Means uh, taught us that you don't write thou shalt nots in your general orders. That's old school. What we do now is any deviation from your policy will be documented immediately after the incident explaining why you deviated. That changed everything. So that gave officers discretion again. And he said, you're, you are, Randy Means said, you're hammering yourselves. You're handing over the lawsuit. Right. By not giving them that privilege to, you know, uh, have discretion. So 
that played into Terry Ziegler's decision to change the way we did. You know, I reminded Terry Ziegler, Chief Ziegler, who's a great chief, but I reminded him of Randy Means training. He goes, yeah, you're right. And so he had his planning research department change the end paragraph of all of our general orders after that. So good came from it, but it, um, it was just, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, it was an interesting solution to the problem um, because, obviously, I didn't get that part of the story uh, because – that was kind of what, what I've seen of, of larger scale agencies. But of course you guys handle, you know, you guys will probably handle as a department, you know, the same number of calls in like an hour that I do in a week, you know, kind of thing. So you guys have so many more situations that you're handling and so more, so, so much diversity well, of be your thankful calls. For that. And be uh, thankful because coming from that, 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 it was not job security. It ran people out of our town. So the fact that you don't have that much is really, it's appealing in principle that uh, a lack of crime and disparage, disparaging situations is a sign of good policing. It isn't what we always thought it was. So good policing, we think, is go out and capture the bad guy after they commit a crime. No, prevention of crime is appealing in principle. And uh, he's the father of modern law enforcement. So... Be glad, be glad, and that's a credit to you and well, your, your agency. You, uh, you just blew my mind there because I, <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie to you. I have really struggled significantly in the last 12 years with uh, the fact that I feel like an overpaid security guard is the, the way I feel because I hear like Lions PD, they're probably 33, 45% bigger than we are. And they will have days that they will do the call, the call, the call, the call, the call. And they're up there doing the quote unquote fun stuff, you know, and I, I've told my dad several times of like, I, I got to do real cop stuff today and he'll be like, oh, what'd you have? And I'll be like, oh, I worked a, uh, like I had an ag robbery one time and I'm like, I got to do real cop shit. And he's like, he'll, and he kind of had some of the same interesting ways of, of saying it, but I, I never really felt like it, but that's an interesting way of looking at it. Cause I've never viewed it through that lens before well and briefly uh overland park police department if you're familiar with them they're the second largest city population wise in the state of kansas there are neighboring bordering city they border kansas city kansas which is one of the smallest cities i mean counties in 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 the state of kansas we have anywhere in Kansas City, Kansas, probably anywhere from, on an average, 35 to 50 homicides a year. They average three. Hmm. We probably have 300 robberies a year, armed robberies. They probably have 15, 20. And I'm not exaggerating. Um, you know, uh, we look at we look at crime stats. I mean, they did us the honor of coming to our metro-wide meetings, but they were doing it right. Whatever they were doing, they were doing it right because they were following the Pelian principles of keeping crime out of your community. Now, there's a lot of other um, proximity issues we could talk about that gave them a lot of success, but, I mean, I give them a lot of credit because Kansas City, Kansas, Wynnett County, um, they, had a, they, had, they had a lot of struggles they were dealing with. Is it still that way, or do you think it's it gotten is, a little better? It's that way, but, man, it's some of the greatest people you ever meet are there, mm -hmm. and they're just hanging on, man. Um, I, loved, I loved working there. I loved the people there. 
Um, there's just a, you know, a relatively small group of people that just feel like they can go in town and do what they want and not follow mm-hmm. laws. We could talk about that. I mean, the issues behind that, fatherless homes and things like that. These these kids have no real men mentors. Mm-hmm. Amen. We've they, talked about that multiple times before yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. We would love to talk about that. That's, that's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, these kids are being raised without even grandfathers anymore. Yeah, true leadership in their house. I mean, they, they right. just don't have it. Right. Well, and the leaders that they do find are typically in the street gang. Who's going to show them the wrong way? Well, what I found, uh, yes, that's true. Uh, it's it's devolved into that. But when I was coming through the ranks, what I noticed was these these men were getting out of prison and going back and teaching the boys. And the boys were idolizing those men. In that culture, in the inner city culture, they idolize pimps, rappers, um, things like that. And so I believe that rap promotes culture of death. I do. And then I think pimps do, you know, they, they promote a lot of vices in your community and they're mm-hmm. just terrible people. Yeah. Human trafficking too. Yes. And it is yeah. terrible people. And so what do they have to look up to? Why are they looking up to these guys? Cause they have cars, they have jewelry, they have money, and they have all the women. And so, well, that's what they want. Well, in a godless society, you're going to, you know, you're going to move towards things that you think are satisfying. Drugs, guns, money, chicks, all that you feel like give you power and prestige. Quote, unquote, fun. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, now I'm just talking about that, that element of society that's out murdering people that are involved mm-hmm. in gangs. And not the rest of the community isn't like that. A lot of these kids get into healthy things like sports and uh, they take a different path. Mm-hmm. So, but the kids that end up dead and on the streets that we had to deal with over and over again, they they took a different path. They took the low road, but they had grandmas that were praying for them. <laughs> yeah. And I met them and the grandmas really cared and they were the ones that would show up and bury them. Um, but those grandmas are dying off now. And so you're going to see... More and more. Can I give one illustration? Yeah. This was told to me by a pastor, a black pastor. So I used to go to the Promise Keeper conferences. Are you familiar with that? I am, but you can explain it. That way everybody that's listening knows as well. Well, it was just, uh, they would uh, have these huge conferences like at Arrowhead Stadium and um, some indoor auditoriums where a bunch of pastors from all over the country would come and they would minister to men specifically and we'd pray together, sing together and uh, repent together. A lot of times just in doubt, you know, prostate on the ground praying. And, uh, um, he tells this, uh, his name was Dr. Rawlings and he tells this story about a herd of elephants in Africa. Um, some poachers come to Africa and killed the adult male bulls. And wiped them out of the herd. So the females are left to raise the juvenile males. And when they get to a certain age and size, uh, they notice that these juveniles were not falling in line like they used to. And they began to get bigger. And they began to uh, attack other elephants. And they began to trample uh, people in, in the villages. And now they're stomping 
people and killing them and rampaging is what they called it a rampage. So the people in, um, in the tribes knew what the problem was. They didn't have the bulls. So they went out and they, they took um, four bulls from another herd and moved them over to this herd with the juveniles where they were rampaging. And they straightened right out. Now, there had to be some head butting that went on initially because they were bucking them. But these, these male bulls uh, knocked them back in line. And next thing you know, these juveniles are following their leaders, as they always do. But they only follow their mothers up to a certain age, which was interesting. And then, um, then they just began to rebel against them because they were emerging as the new leaders, but they had no guidance. They didn't know what to do with all that. They didn't have anyone pushing them back in line, making them follow. So Dr. Rollins gives that example to say, this is what's going on in your streets. These women are having babies and they're trying to raise them without men. And this is what you're going to get rampaging. See the inner city kids without dads are angry. So they're acting out of anger and they don't have a male to step in and push them back in line and say, no, you don't do that. So, you know, all kids have that rebellious time in their lives, right? I went through it from 12 to about 14 when I moved back in with my dad. These young boys are going through it even younger, like nine, because they already got testosterone flowing through their yeah. veins at nine. And they're, they're never coming out of that phase because now they're introducing alcohol and drugs to them. They still don't have strong role models, and they're rampaging our cities. Well, and also you have those drugs and alcohol being introduced earlier in developing brains, which right. are now damaging the developing brain. So even if later on, you know, it's going to take a lot more hard work to, to get that to go back in line. But it's interesting that you say that because there's a lot of um, similarities there to my son Elijah. Like he fosters a lot of, uh, hangs on to a lot of anger when he thinks about, you know, his biological father kind of quote unquote giving him up. And we've reintroduced that him to the biological father and things have started to go better. But then once he stopped contact again, that anger, boom, right back through the roof. Um, and you want to talk about bulls and juveniles, button heads and trying to get back into line. Whew. And that's a dichotomy too. Right. Um, but there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of truth to that. And there's, I can say for anybody that's listening to this, that I've lived it. Right. <laughs> there is truth to that. Well, I raised, uh, one that wasn't my own and he had what I now know is a detachment disorder. And so if you don't give children, um, love and attention and affection that nurturing as well as the security they need that as well they will they will never learn how to attach they will never trust and they go on to live sometimes some very psychotic lives so that's what what you know in the end we loved my nephew and my niece but they've take they've taken a different path they just can't attach and um you know we did what we could but when you get them at 10 and 11 yeah. I've, I've had that same conversation with my wife of like, we, we at least can have peace of mind and knowing that like, we've done everything we can. And not to say that like, that was just with our kiddos in general, not just with, with Eli, but 
of if, if they choose when they get older to make some bad decisions, you know, we can at least have the peace of mind of knowing like we, we tried, we did what we could with what we had. So, right. I sleep good at night knowing I tried. Yeah. Um, so, uh, to go back to some of your, uh, uh, detective days, um, if we kind of backtrack a little bit there, I know we segued, but when we can continue to segue throughout this whole conversation, but I'll be here all day tomorrow, (laughs) um, through, through a, uh, another, uh, story that I loved hearing that you told in class was, uh, when you were working, uh, what was it like basically the robbery slash rape? Uh, there was the young girl and her, her mother and stuff like that. Is that, I think that was just a, a really great story of how you kind of overcame some obstacles. So would, are you comfortable with sharing sure. that story here? I would love to, to hear it's that again. a long story. I mean, let's do it. Everybody better get their next cup of coffee. Yeah. All right. Pause the podcast, everyone. <laughs> go grab yourself some popcorn it's and uh, some chocolate story. and uh, get yourself a pop and you'll be ready to go. So a 14-year-old black girl was sent to a grocery store a couple of blocks away from her house. And this is uh, this is around Christmas time, so it was really cold out. She encounters a man standing outside of the grocery store. It's a little neighborhood family grocery store. And this man is standing out there smoking a cigarette. And he's got a mask on, a ski mask and a hood over his head. And he's smoking a cigarette. And he tells her hello. And she just smiles and says hello and goes in. And she comes out with whatever she was buying and she was headed home and it was dark. And, um, she, like I said, she looked a couple of blocks away. She noticed he was following her. She could hear him. She turned back. So she saw he was back there and he wasn't smoking. He was just kind of striding towards her. He was a big guy, tall. She was short, 14 years old. Um, she's a bright kid. She, she went to, um, an academy school. So she's real bright, but she was she lived in a bad area, and it, and everybody knew this area was just you know terrible area. A lot of vices were out on the market right out there in front of the world to see. And she gets to the alley near the alley by her house, and he pulls a gun on her, grabs her by her jacket, tells her, you know, she better cooperate or he'll shoot her. She's terrified. Um, this guy's a monster size wise and his face is covered. He's got a real deep voice and he's, she's terrified. And he said, take me to your house. So she does thinking, you know, she would get, she would be safe in there or at least have other people around her. She goes inside the house and yells up to her mom. Her mom's upstairs with her little brother. Um, well, her mom's inside. He forces them all three upstairs and, He's uh he's 11 years old, she's 14, and the mom is um a middle-aged black female. And <clears throat> this guy separates them all, puts the boy in a bathroom, uh tells him to stay there or he'll kill him and shuts the door behind him. Takes the mom into her bedroom, tells her not to move or he will kill the other two. And so she sits in her bed and waits for him. He goes in and rapes and molests the 14-year-old. She was a virgin. And he just did a lot of unspeakable acts to her. And then he comes back to the mom and begins the same routine with her. And this goes on throughout the night for a couple hours. Back and forth. This guy's on crack cocaine. 
And if you know anything about cocaine, sometimes it inhibits your ability to finish. So this guy was getting more and more desperate to finish. You know, he's been in this house a couple of hours. He's hot. He's got a ski mask on. He's got his gloves on. And he's he's just doing more and more detestable things to try to finish. And then here comes the other sister. Uh, she was 16 years old. And she's coming home from a part-time job. She worked after school. She walks upstairs and walks right into this mess. And, um, and then he takes her in her bedroom. She never told us what he did to her, but she denies that she was molested or raped. We didn't believe her, but she wouldn't do a rape kit. She was too ashamed. Well, <clears throat> um, but he did take her pager. So we're talking, um, you know, mid-90s. Nate, Nate, do you even know what a pager is? <laughs> okay. Yep. You're, you're much younger than me, so I thought of that. Yeah, I remember uh, my grandma carrying one around when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> She's slinging dope? Yeah. <laughs> nice. No, no, but the inner city kids, it was kind of a status symbol for them. And they had got it at a, uh, she had got it at a local place um, that was right on the avenue, Minnesota Avenue. And she showed us her paperwork. Um, so I went to the hospital the next day with the little girl and the mom and took them all to the hospital and sat there and got their statements and their tear filled eyes. And it was just the mom felt so helpless. And then the little brother just wouldn't talk about it. But he had to hear all that for hours. Um, and, you know, that was his mom and his sister. And she was the nicest, cutest little thing you ever saw. And, and of course, the, the older sister, she's nothing. You know, crickets. She won't say anything. She won't cooperate at all. So we're trying to solve this without her. And none, none of the people got a look at him. He left no fingerprints. He never ejaculated. He didn't use saliva. Or if he did, they didn't find it in any of the rape kits. Because they waited a full, I don't know, five hours um, after the rapes before I came and got them. I mean, they should have been taken by ambulance probably right away, but they didn't. So this hits the news like a couple of days later. And there's a uh, radio station named KPRS. Um black sponsored, black um, owned and sponsored. And um, they were accusing the police department of not caring. And um, meanwhile, we were in the house at that very moment while they were outside staging and throwing a fit that the police didn't care. So I just thought that was ironic. (laughs) I did care. In fact, I wept a little bit at the hospital with this girl. Um, I tried to suck up the tears because I tried to be tough for her, you know, but it was touching to be there with her after she had just had to go through a rape kit and then give me a statement. And then like little, like he's our little buddy. We're taking him everywhere. Now we're taking him to lunch and he's, he's having a blast with us. So, yeah. So, um, we, we take, we take this slip into this pager company and the guy there, we tell him what happened because he wasn't cooperative. And we're like, Hey man, this is what happened. Can you help us? He's like, wow, dude. Yeah, I can give you another pager. It's called a dupe pager, duplicate pager. So you're going to be able to see every page this guy's getting. This guy stole her pager and said, don't turn it off. And anyway. And that's where he messed up. We tracked that down. That was the only piece of evidence we had. But he also told him some personal things about him. Like 
that he saw them every morning get on the bus going to school. That was important because he caught the Metro bus right across the street at that time every morning because he was a janitor in the school district over Kansas City, Missouri. And he was slinging dope over there too, by the way. We found out later. We never never um, locked that down because we didn't care about that. But he also said that he wouldn't normally do this to a queen, is what he said. Uh, but the government shut off shut off his lights and power. He has no power. So we knew that about him. He's living in a place, probably a vacant house or a house where he has no power. And it's nearby because he's catching a bus there. So when we track him down later, we would track him down through that pager because he was using it because he was slinging dope from that pager. When we tracked him down, we walk in the house. He's got no power. <laughs> he's got a deep voice. He's from St. Louis, and um, he, the little girl and the mother described his hands as very big and very powerful. And when he shook my hand, he dwarfed my hand and just crushed it. So I knew I had the right guy by the voice and the size and the description. And um, he didn't deny having the pager at first. At first, he denied it. It's like, what are you talking about, Pager? What? And I said, well, all these people say they're calling this Pager to get a hold of you. So, where's the Pager, Andre? We need it back. It was taken in a robbery. You know, oh, that. Oh, yeah, I got that off street. Okay, great. Can I have it? Because you don't want to be complicit in this, do you? And he's like, oh, no, no, I'll get it back to you. But I threw it down a drain. I said, you did? Okay, take me to that drain. He walks me down to the grocery store where that little girl first saw him hmm. to a drain right there. Now we get there and he's like, Oh, I wasn't there. I, I, I gave it to a friend. I'll go get it. Why did he walk us there? I thought of all the places, all the drains we walked past three blocks. That was God making that dummy make mistakes. And you know, what a football. And so I was like, okay, that's more than a coincidence. I know I got the right guy here. But we got no physical evidence. CSI wasn't that popular yet, but still, people knew about DNA. We mm-hmm. had no DNA. We had no semen. And um, um, so what happened was I went to the, the, the DA's office. We got him picked up on a parole violation because when I went into his house to talk to him, I noticed there was a shotgun there, and you couldn't be around a shotgun. He was a parolee. He'd just gotten out for rape. <clears throat> and so... What happened was uh, I got a hold of KDOC, and they hung paper on him. They said, we can send him back for 90 days. That's what they did. And they gave me time to work the case. So we had him brought back to Winnick County Jail for the purpose of doing a voice lineup. So the question came to the prosecutor. I remember seeing a movie when I was a kid of a woman who was blind who was the victim of a robbery. And the detective was able to track down the suspect by her description. So I a quirky thing, but I remember that. And I just asked the prosecutor, Tara Moorhead, I asked her, what would, what would we normally do in a case where you have a blind victim? How would they identify him? She goes, she thought about it and she goes, Hmm, we could do a voice lineup. What's that? Well, you know, he has a distinct voice. 
they they described his voice as different from anybody around. Maybe they can identify him. For, so we we held a voice lineup where we put them behind, literally behind walls. Uh, you know, the detective walls. You know, the makeshift walls, kind of a curtain thing, soundproofing wall, and set them down and had them say the same things that they said to those kids, and they picked him out. We ran that before jury, and the jury convicted him. He's doing ninety-seven years. Well, I just thought that that story was interesting because, you know, a lot of people see like CSI, right? They see or they see a, a television show where they go through these things and it's it's almost like these cases, you know, the, all, they're solved in the 30 minute episode and, and it's all done. It's over with. Everybody's happy mm-hmm. and all that other good stuff. But it was interesting that this that case that you presented had some interesting hurdles. And also some interesting ways that you accomplish the the goal and the task at hand. Um, so- may, may I offer something else in that regard to why it got solved? Number one, I was praying over that case every day. And it was really important to me to solve that. Um, but, you know, these, these kids got my heart. And I had kids at home, too. And you can't help but as a policeman, you know, superimpose your kids on those situations. So... I was praying every day that God would lead me and cause him to stumble and fail. So can you imagine the smile on my face when he walked me right to that place? The other thing I had in this case, God sent me a helper. He sent me a Caleb, and uh, it was Larry Chronister. He was a brand-new detective, but this guy has got cajones of steel, very brave, uh, one of the most decorated officers I know. And he ended up working on task force right after I left it, but he was just uh, a great asset to me to bounce things off of. I couldn't have done it alone. It would have been too hard for me to go against this big foe without some help. So uh, I, I just wanted to put a shout out there to that because that's the backstory. You know, nobody knows I was praying over it every day. God know, God knew who did that. And the interesting thing is when he got put in the newspaper after he was convicted, four other women came forward and said the same thing happened to them. Did you say that he was on parole for rape charges previously? So he had already been convicted once and got out, I guess. To the best of my recollection, he served his time as something that happened in St. Louis, and he got out and he came here. Hmm. That's crazy. Hmm. He was a young man when he did that one. Yeah. How old would he have been when he got convicted the second time-ish? Right at 30? Yeah. I think. Um, And so he's in Kansas prison right yes okay andre robinson um you can always look him up he's he's a real we, we will do work. just that we will do just that um so let's see here because and because crim, criminal history is also one of the things that we we will use as like most of the time you can't use criminal history like in court like you can't tell a jury that they have criminal history because then that prejudices them against that person. But it helps us as an investigatory tool because criminal history is, you know, an indicator of what they're like as a criminal. And so you kind of helps navigate you in kind of that right direction. Most of those guys follow those same patterns, don't they? Like when something like that. Um, you know, I don't see much like reform going on. I don't see much reform going on in the prisons. Yeah. And, um, you know, what's interesting about Andre was he used that terminology of queen. And I knew that to be that 
to me, that was a term that the Nation of Islam used to refer to the women. Well, they do a lot of recruiting in prison, so right away I suspected that he could have been uh, radicalized in prison or at least converted is probably a better word because what he did was went, went against the Nation of Islam totally. Mm-hmm. What was his last name again? Robinson. Okay, go continue. They, they, would, they would kill him, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, for that, so um, I would say he was converted in prison. That, that's what I was already thinking mm-hmm. because of the, the different things he was saying to her. But they, they, these were wonderful witnesses. I mean, they were outstanding. They they logged it all away, and uh, you just sometimes as a detective, you got to slow down and you got to ask all the questions. Just let them pour it on you. That him behind you? That's him. So, let's see, that would have been, he was, 1969 was when he was born, and the conviction was 1998. So, 69 to 98. No, 96. Or, 96, sorry about that, 96. So, here's an interesting story about him. He, while he's in the Winnet County Jail, waiting to be taken away, he, well, actually... Before his trial, he's in the Wyandotte County Jail. He doesn't get along with a deputy. The deputy's about your size, a big guy. And the deputy's not intimidated by this guy at all. This guy sucker punches the deputy, takes the deputy's key ring from him, beats him over the head, and gives him a traumatic brain injury. The, the deputy had to re, re, take a medical retirement. Young guy. Um, that's how vicious this guy is. Yeah, because it shows up there. Ag, ag battery LEO, intentional physical harm there. Shows that as well. Yeah. But on your case, yours is all Wyandotte, right? I mean, you guys charge right. him with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, that was 8, our 9, prosecutor. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. That was our wow. prosecutor. Yep. For every time he went back to that little girl, for every little new thing he did to her, that was a new count. And Good uh, for that prosecutor. Well, good for the, the judge, too, for seeing through it. I'll just let you know, he's still a criminal while in prison. Check that out. Last write-up was January 1st of 2020. Lots of fighting, theft, dangerous contraband. Still, still a nice guy. I can see he's still a nice guy. Well, it's definitely an argument for prison reform. Yeah. There's there's not, not much reforming going on with the prisoners there. and uh, Things, things that I, to me, have seemed like they've gotten worse and worse in the prisons. And you can't find correctional officers because they don't want to go work those facilities. And it's just... No, they take... 19, 20 year old kids and throw them in there into the bullpen. Yeah, I know. And like, traumatize them. At a high school and like college, like I've had multiple friends go work at the correctional facilities, you know, just young kids and they only last a year there. My son like, did. I'm 18 out. months. Yeah. But they pay, I mean, they pay really well for that age, you know, and it's, right. which isn't necessarily a good thing. Well, they give them really good training. Um, they tell them all the ways they could end up in prison too. And they give them a really good training, but the problem is there isn't enough of them. Yeah. And um, it's just, uh, they're just really taking anybody that'll come down there. Well, and, and also you talk about that trauma. Um, I have a buddy that's a deputy at Rice County right now that he went from the prison. He took a $10 an hour cut in pay to come work Rice County yeah. Sheriff's Office. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, how, <coughs> that's how toxic yeah. the, the prison system was. And you want to talk about trauma. I mean, it, he tells me stories that make me go, what mm-hmm. oh. you know where these guys are like 
you know, I mean, let's face it, these guys, these guys aren't in a maximum security, which actually Hutch is technically kind of the quote unquote super max. Now they kind of restructured how they do it. Um, they aren't in there because they forgot to go to church. Right. And so you want to talk about traumas and now you're putting like those 19 year old kids and stuff like that. And, and then if we go even further back in your conversation of you're putting 19 year old kids in there now that potentially haven't had good father figures and all that other kind of stuff. And my buddy Cameron said, not only did he see a change in the new inmates that are coming in where they immediately go to violence and stabbing immediately. Like we're talking 19, 20 year old kids coming into the prison system where he says at least the OGs, which is like original gangsters, the old guys that are like in charge of the gangs, they kind of do things more with a business mindset and all this other kind of stuff and kind of they don't immediately go to violence. That's not to say they won't do violence, but that's not immediate. And they don't like the new kids. So now you've got the new kids coming up that were had fatherless homes. But plus you've got sometimes you've got correctional officers that are coming in with that same thing. And my buddy Cam said he would see a lot of those 19, 20 year old kids come in and like try to step up and like, I'm the big, bad, you know, big, bad guy. And you're going to listen to me type attitude because they never had got egos on both sides yeah. that don't clash uh, well and so or clash huh, you, you talk about like a trauma environment that that prison system 110 percent is it violent homosexuals is the theme in there and um they are raping men yep <laughs> i don't know that it's changed at all um but they are raping men as you know as soon as they get in there if they don't fight for themselves had a guy that killed himself. He was, um, his name was David Payne. And, um, I was looking for him while I was in FAU for robbery or rape murder. I'm sorry. I'll get it together. Payne had killed his estranged wife's new boyfriend and he was on the run and we cornered him in the house. He wouldn't come out. And I called him on the phone. Uh, and I said, Hey man, just come on out. You know, no, I am not going back to prison. I'm not going through that again, man. Uh, next time you see me, I'll be dead. And after he made a few more phone calls, we heard that muffled shot and he was gone. And you know that, and he was a hardened criminal. He was hard, but he's not going back to prison. That says something about the prison system that we don't understand what's going on there. And it's, they need Jesus, man. Yeah. Big time, but the you're going to have to execute more people. You just got to. You can't keep warehousing souls. Then what's going to get them right with God quicker is if they know they're going to face that needle. And um, you, if they know they're getting out one day, they just keep appealing. They'll be out one day. Yep, they're going to be right back there doing. Or at least get a at the very least get a stay. You know, right? Uh, well, we we just don't do it right. We don't handle justice swiftly in our country. There needs to be a lot more executions. Some of these people are irredeemable. Well, and that's why I like uh, Hutch's prison has the Freedom Challenge Ministry that I was talking to. Um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, goodness gracious! No pressure. Yeah. Anyway, the the gentleman <laughs> the gentleman that runs it. Why am I drawing a blank? But he because uh, that was one of the things of like um, if if I ran if I you know if I ended up winning a sheriff race was. You know, I'd love to see programs like that. Not necessarily the sense like you gotta, but things like that, that the availability, the mental health services, the kind of like we're, we're, we're investing in people and they may not work. But if it works out of one of, you know, 100 people, uh, then at least we gave it a try, you know, and the Freedom Challenge Ministry has been interesting. I mean, I sat 
at a table with a, with a gentleman because what they do is, is when they have their banquet, when they have their banquet for Freedom Challenges, is they will have you, you buy a table, and that's you know fundraiser, obviously. And at that table, they sit a person that's been through the program with you. And you get to kind of know them and all that other kind of stuff. Well, there's a statute in Kansas that's aggravated indecent liberties with a child, which basically means that you, you know, had, you know, intercourse or fondled someone between the ages, uh, uh, well, basically under 18, but like 14 to 16 is the, is the area there. And then also under 14 and that, that makes it a worse crime under 14. The guy sitting at our table was that guy. And while I don't know, and I'll never know if he's truly quote unquote reformed, it was still a good conversation. And and I think God led me to that conversation because he opened my eyes to some things I'd never considered. Like whenever we get out of prison or we get out of jail, we struggle with things like, okay, probation requires us to get a job, but the job requires us to have an ID. Well, we don't have an ID. Well, in order to get an ID, we need a birth certificate. So like, like systems like that inside the jail to help them get a birth certificate and a, or an ID while they're in jail so that they can satisfy probation's requirements. Or you're required to report to probation immediately upon release, but they've got nobody on the outs that can give them a ride or anything like that. So um, it was an interesting interesting conversation and an interesting eye-opener. And, and I'm not saying that that guy was reformed or anything like that, but it was, it was a good conversation. Well, we've had officers that emerged from prison that had to go to prison for uh, convictions and we would talk to him later and they said man it's gladiator games they're just it's just a killing field in there it's just crazy what they saw and what happened so we got a little bit of an idea of how violent it is and now they're throwing cops in there um quite frequently so it's it's a different world man well and that that's also another thing too is if you think about it at least you and i and also even correctional officers, but we kind of get a chance to unplug from it and go back to society and the quote-unquote real world, even though we take that stuff with us, but at least we have the chance to kind of unplug from that trauma for just a little bit at least. Whereas those guys are in there, when you talk about that rehabilitation and reform when it comes to those, those prison systems of the true hardened guys, like you're going to have them spend, what, an hour? or two, maybe a day, probably more like a week, an hour a week to quote unquote, go to a class and they're going to be all better. Like what? That doesn't make any sense. They're spending the other 23 hours of that day trying to kill each other or sling dope or make money or whatever. Well, prison's not the answer to societal problems. I mean, we have to warehouse the most violent around us and people deserve justice, but why do we call it criminal justice? You ever thought about that? Why is it I'd called not. the criminal justice system? Because they're the only ones getting the justice around here. Um, a lot of the victims don't feel like they're the focus of the justice system. They don't feel like they're adequately getting justice. So it, it all needs to be rethought and redone. Um, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't have the answers. It's, it's difficult. Well, I, I have a case that I got a call right before coming here um, that I was like, I called the guy and I was like, why would you have to call me now? Why, why did you have to piss me off now? Um, of, of the same thing where I had two young ladies that are 9 and 10 years old that were sexually abused by a stepfather. 
and the prosecutor, you know, is, is not going to prosecute on that. And I'm like, and, and these two young ladies said, or one of the young ladies said in her interview that she didn't trust cops. Like she didn't like cops. They were scary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I'm like, now how are they going to feel about me? Right. Because they don't look at the prosecutor, right? right? They don't, they don't factor the prosecutor in that, pro- that equation at all. They look at us right. as the ones that are supposed to get them justice. Like we put the handcuffs on, we put them in jail. And, you know, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I'm listening to these two girls. And of course I'm in another room. And like you said, I, I am on the other side of that door weeping along mm-hmm. with them listening to this because mm-hmm. I'm like, holy cow of what's going on. And so, yeah, I, I, I get where people feel like they aren't getting justice from the criminal exactly. justice system. You want to hear something interesting? Um, and I got this from a former prosecutor, Wynette County prosecutor, actually the former DA. He explained to me the justice system, this is how it works. It's like a lottery system for your county. You only get so many people you can put away. Now think about that. Wynette County is one of the busiest places for criminal activity right now. Mm-hmm. They're the smallest county. They only get so many that they can put away. So you have to pick and choose. And this is what he said. You, you you know about the deer lottery, right? So like and to pull a tag, right? To, you got to yeah. pull a tag, and you can just have that deer in that area, right? Yep, right. Mm-hmm. Well, they have the same thing for prisoners. <laughs> they can only take so many, and for every one they take, they have to let one out the back door. How scary is that? They don't have room. They're shutting down jails because the state of Kansas can't afford to keep the jails open, so they're shutting down jails. The CCAs are kicking it a little bit and they're they're doing the thing for the federal side but on the state side um, it's a problem so every time we put one in the front door the pro boards have to let someone out the back door yeah so eventually what's that going to look like the long-term people are going to be just the hardcore criminals right and they're going to be the rapists and the murderers that's what we're going to be left with in jail. So everybody else gets to go free. They get an ankle bracelet, or I don't know what's going to happen to them. But, but and in, in besides that, you shouldn't stick a burglar or a car thief in the same jail system as these murderers and rapists. Yeah, well, that's you that's what the classification system's supposed to help with. You right. know, the low, the medium, the high, and so well, on. Well, how does that help when they're all? But that's what I'm saying is, is that the lows are supposed to be housed with the lows. The mediums are supposed to be housed oh, with the yeah. mediums and the highs are supposed that's to be housed it. with the highs. Right. So on and so forth. It's supposed to. But like right. you said. I mean, they're all in the you, same system. Do the, they gels are, the gels are overcrowded. Yeah. So they're letting out all the lows to make room for the highs. So they're in the same gels now with the lows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, it's supposed to. It's supposed to. Right. In theory. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I just don't think we've prioritize the it's it's good to say let's put them in jail never let them out we all want to say that but that ain't working so we got to rethink that it's not sustainable no over time you're right so do you think it's something where it needs to start like from the beginning and like you were talking like maybe not necessarily foster system but like from when they're kids you know and having those Obviously, it'd be nice to be able to have a father in every home, but that's not the right. It that's starts not the case. There. Um, 
I well, don't know. Two things. One, if there's no father in the home, the mothers need to nurture them. They need mm-hmm. to love on them. Otherwise, they'll have the attachment disorder, right? Yeah. The other thing is these churches need to be churches. They're not. Think about this. In your town, you probably have what? There's 12, 12 churches in Sterling. Yeah, it's a lot. What about your town? Is that where you're from? Sterling? Yeah. Yeah. What if you had 12 McDonald's in Sterling? Who would run that town? Fat people. McDonald's would run your town. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they would have all the employees there. They would have everybody eating McDonald's. They would all be drinking McDonald's, eating McDonald's, hanging out at McDonald's, playing McDonald's. Mm-hmm. They would own your town. Now, you have 12 churches. Why don't they own your town? Why aren't they fixing this problem? Because you have a lot of people behind the pulpit that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not reaching the lost. They're not saving people. I got saved at an early age. I still wandered until I was about 14. Well, actually, even after then, you know, my first five to ten years as a police officer, I was a heathen. But, you know, as I got older and I started having children, I became that conservative Christian guy mm-hmm. and have come back to my faith, my roots. But that early groundwork that was done in my life paid off later. Yeah, that's the same thing that I'm going through. I'm currently walking that journey now. Good I'm, for I'm, you. I'm like, I'm only like three or four years into it. But Brother, you can't be a cop successfully Amen. if you're 100%. not a Christian. 100%. The Bible talks about 100%. renewing your mind. Well, that's how you recover your brain from all the trauma is uh, the scripture in the Bible. You can try everything else out there you want. Yep. It's dead end. I'm telling you, it'll give you temporary pressure relief. Temporary self-medication, but in the long run, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you that, um, you know, this journey, you know, when I told you that that piece that I saw about you of, you know, that that was different than I'd seen against other people. I'd kind of wondered if that was had something to do with it. And you've since kind of helped that that is exactly what it is. But I wish I I wish that I could instill that piece that I feel in my heart of hearts that in, in other people so they could feel it and they can understand. Cause a lot of times you try to explain it and they're asking hard questions and sometimes you don't know how to answer them because there isn't one, you know, like why did God even create us then? Are we some big science experiment? Oof, that's not in scripture. I don't know. I can't tell you. Um, but, uh, but one of the things that, um, that I find interesting is, is, um, when we talk, when I talk about that piece and instilling that in people and wanting them to, to truly feel that, I don't know how you can be a good cop, an effective cop, and not be a Christian. Um, because without that piece, I mean, what is your, what's your guidelines, and, and why are you going to follow? Them? Yeah, just oh. not to get fired. Yeah, and and one of the things that I found that is different is is like I think that when you find that piece, is it it re rehabilitate your mind into seeing your fellow man as just that your fellow man because i see a lot of my colleagues at least i don't know if you can say the same but often they're referring to our fellow men as dopers or pieces of shit or insert derogatory term here you know i heard another officer that said you know that guy's been a piece of shit since he fell out of his mom's vagina like those were the words he was using in front of a brand new officer you know and i i just 
took that guy aside and I said, I want you to understand something. What you just heard here today will lead to a very short career, if that's the way you want to think. I said, that man that he was talking about has blood in his veins, breathes oxygen the same as you, and is a child of God the same as you. I said, now, we still hold him accountable. He's still doing bad things. But I was like, so that that to me is like that piece of just being able to see him for who they are and where they're at. Still hold accountable. Still do your job. But have like a, I guess a disconnect would be the best way I can explain that. I think um, it's really easy for us to fall into that terminology, though, as police officers. It's it is. just self-preservation. Yeah. And, you know, it's real easy for us to judge others um, because we're not doing that. But, man, have you ever been woken up by a dream or a nightmare where you were that other guy? <laughs> where you were doing something you, you shouldn't have been doing and now your career's down the toilet or whatever? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just wake up when that happens and thank God that, He's led me away from that. And so there's a verse that goes, but for the grace of God, there go I. And if we just remember that, that I could very easily be that homeless person right yep. now. With the life I was living between 12 and 14, um, a lot of buddies I was running with died. Untimely deaths early. <laughs> and they were just potheads, but they died early. And uh, did a lot of things that they shouldn't have been doing. Got caught up in things that shouldn't have been. But thank God, you know, that he saved me. So I can't answer those questions either. Why did God make man? But I can just tell you that I thank God that he did. And I'm looking forward to the day I get to be with him. So there's that. <laughs> well, I had some like uh, actual canned questions that I sent sure. you. And so are you cool with me asking mm-hmm. those now? Go for so, it. I didn't know if you had anything because I saw you writing some stuff down earlier. No, I, I got to. And I also actually have some uh, questions too that have sparked that I have written down. But So the first question I asked you, which you've already answered the first part of that is, but what does it take to be an effective godly man, like in your opinion? I don't know. God? <laughs> I mean, I thought about that question, but I don't have it all together. It's a journey, man, and uh, I ain't got it figured out. I'm no minister of the gospel like I should be. I mean, I'm no, you know, my kids didn't turn out the way I wanted uh, with my example. I mean, if I'd have given a better example, they would have turned out, I'm sure, a lot better. But you've heard of that phenomenon, the PKs, preacher's kids, Mm -hmm. and the police officer's kids, because they were so restrained and restricted that when they get old enough, they just go go crazy. Yeah. Wild. But I effective is a hard term man but i could just tell you it's a it's it's a journey you won't know on this side of heaven how effective you were i don't think um so then i asked the the same question but in a different way uh how how, what do you feel it takes to be an effective husband man you just gotta love her in spite of her (laughs) she's gonna drive you crazy no matter what well you know the bible talks about respect him and submit to him as unto the lord while he submits to the lord he actually should love you. That's the formula, man. I mean, you just got to love her. And what does that look like? I mean, pay attention to her. Listen to her. Um, hug her. Tell her you're sorry. <laughs> Admit when you're wrong. Admit when you're wrong. Uh, what are the most powerful world words on earth are? Honey, I was wrong. <laughs> and then to follow that up with, yes, dear. 
Those are the most powerful words on earth. Um, that doesn't mean you have to be emasculated. doesn't mean that you're not the leader of the home. doesn't mean that your kids won't look up to you, but it doesn't mean you have to be gentle, especially as big as you are. If you raise your voice to a woman, you are automatically an abuser, my friend. You're automatically in that category of toxic masculinity. <laughs> so you can't do that. And my, I'm so fortunate my daughter married a giant. And she's hypersensitive, so if he were to ever raise his voice, she would just melt and cry. But he is so gentle. And, you know, here, last year I got cancer, and they gave me about 50% chance of survival. So um, I had to go back and tell the kids, you know, we're going to Arizona, we're going to MD Anderson, and they're going to remove my kidney, and they're going to work out things in my vein and stuff. And they give me about a 50% chance coming off the table. So just in case I don't, you guys know that I love you and I love your mom. And I'm sorry. I wasn't the best dad. I wasn't the best husband. And then I looked at my son-in-law and I said, Tyler, I love you too. And thank you for being the husband that you are to my daughter. You're perfect. And you got to know the whole story where I didn't like him when she first met him <laughs> to appreciate <laughs> That's that. a prerequisite. Yeah. So, um, He's just such a gentle guy, and he's such a good father, too, to my grandkids. So I just love that guy. The next one I asked you was, so what do you feel it takes to be an effective father? I mean, obviously, you've you've identi identified some things that you feel maybe you could have done better. You know, we talked about that secondary trauma earlier, and that's that as a cop, that's what you're going to do. You're going to take it home and take it out on your kids. You can take it out on your wife. I think my my areas of control that I lost was my temper. I became more and more, um, well, I have high blood pressure anyway, so I'm hypertensive. And that creates anxieties in itself, just physiologically. And then you're yeah. working high-stress hours and jobs and diet and paged out. I lived by a pager for 20-some years. I mean, it's paged out all the time and just, you know, so I don't know that I was an effective father, um, but I know what not to do, and I won't do it to my grandkids. I'm going to be that gentle guy to them, and uh, I'm just going to let them know that how much I care about them and love them and spoil them with gifts <laughs> as much as I can. And uh, like I said, I don't know the answer to effective fatherhood. I, I My dad modeled it for me. One thing I wouldn't do, what he, my dad always said, a bad example is an example. Well, I didn't divorce my wife. So I remind my kids of that. You didn't have to go through a divorce. And that would have changed your whole life, your whole trajectory, your whole mindset, your whole sense of self-security. All of that changes with divorce. So especially at a young age. So I didn't do that to you. There were times I wanted to, and she did too. But we, we made an oath early on that we wouldn't do that. Uh, short of, you know, adultery. Because pretty much, and don't beat me up, or I'm not going to throw things at you. And there was some uh, bad language that was used around each other and to each other that was unfortunate. But um, yeah, that's where it's at. My kids were exposed to her and I arguing a lot, so and I attribute a lot of that to my job. I think it's easy to do when you talk about the hypertensive thing, like I went to DRE training and they were taking my blood pressure and the guy looks at me and he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, why? 
And he's like, your blood pressure is 160 over 110. And I was like, uh, that sounds like a micromanager I was working for. That that's exactly what my blood pressure was. Really? Said you're about to stroke out, brother. And so I ended up going to the doctor. You know, of course, I get prescribed uh, high blood pressure medication. Of course, like you talk about, diet was phenomenal then. Um, and, you know, the sleep habits were phenomenal then and, and everything. And then, of course, work being work, which I didn't deal with near what, you know, your officers and you dealt with. But, you know, I still do things, you know. And, and for me, I'm everything. Like, there is no SWAT, no detective, no. So when that call comes in, all of it's mine. From the time I take the call to the time testifying in court comes up, you every bit. You can't minimize of it. that either, and Nick. That is that's huge. You're shouldering that community in, in in a large way, and I just shouldered a small part of mine. You're sh- you're shouldering a much bigger portion, so don't minimize that. That's huge. But you, uh, I appreciate that, um, and and you. But there is a lot to that. I mean, I felt literally like a rubber band wound up once I kind of acknowledged it, and f- and felt, and then once I started taking the medication, and I didn't feel. Like, so just tense all the time. Like, it felt like my body kind of just relaxed. What was it, fentanyl? Or what was uh, it? Yeah. <laughs> Metopril. <laughs> Nothing works on me. <laughs> Metopril. Uh, okay. Large amounts of fentanyl. Um, but yeah. You can edit that. Yeah. <laughs> Metopril. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot to that. I, I would agree with that. I mean, and like you said, there's definitely been things said. Um, you know, I will say the divorce word's been thrown around twice, once by her, once by me, and and it was uh, it was not a fun time. And how long have you been married? Uh, let's see. Alexander is 12. So 11 years, but we've been together for 15, known each other since third grade. But, okay. Um, you're just getting started. Well, that's just the thing of, and we've been through some rough patches. I'll tell you some super rough patches, uh, that Nate knows about that. I'm not ready to talk about on here yet, but, um, there's been a lot of growth and there's been, uh, a lot of times where, you know, and I'll tell you, like that that divorce word. I was like, okay, whoa, 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 how did we get here? You know, we we took an oath in front of God together. Like we we're gonna honor that. Man, the devil gets your kids. Just remember that. If he gets your marriage, he gets your kids. Like my parents divorced and they went their own ways. They were happy, you know. And my dad found other women, wives, or whatever. He's married two more times. Loved my dad to death, but it never bothered him one step. I mean, there was that first year, it was kind of rough, I guess, where you had to find somewhere else to live. But, you know, the, the Dan, don't, don't say that kids are resilient, they'll get over it. My eye, me and my brother and sister have never gotten over the divorce. You know, I'm 58 years old. That, that, went, that went with me, that's baggage I carried. My dad didn't carry that, my mom didn't carry that. I carried that for them. And the devil gets your kids, man. And so I always looked at it like, if I'm not there, I'm not going to let another man step into my shoes and do my job. So, if I can at all help it, I'm going to stay with my wife. But, man, you think about it. The devil wants your family. If he can destroy that, he's destroyed, you know, the image of heaven and the image of God himself. So, it's a nonstop attack on police officers, spiritual attack, and on family men like yourselves. Why do you think there's only, like... 50% of Americans stay married, you know, less than that probably. So that's why. So uh, what what does it also take, in your opinion, to be an effective law enforcement officer? Effective. 
Well, I can just tell you the, the journey I traveled was my dad always told me move around a lot, you know, at KCK because there was a lot of places I could move to in KCK. Move around a lot because don't don't get bored. Do a lot of different things, and that's just what I did. But consequently, I became knowledgeable about a lot of things, but a master of hardly any of them. I have this broad knowledge base of all the units on the police department. But I was only in a lot of them for a year or two. So I never became that subject matter expert. But what it did is it helped me keep my sanity because the change made me regroup and think of things differently and go learn something else. As long as I'm learning, I'm growing. As long as I'm growing, I'm not bored. Do you feel like, and then obviously that helped you in your leadership like later on, like as you got higher because you understood every department, but also now like because you're, you're teaching it, you know, mm. you're spreading the word of it and you're helping so many people like through processes and leadership, but you know the, you've got such a great base. I feel like that's part of like your success is having that base, you know? Well, it definitely gave me more war stores. Yeah. <laughs> more experience to draw from, but that was never the intent. Yeah. I mean, I guess I did in the back of my mind think, oh, I'm going to build a resume. Yeah, I'll go do this. <laughs> look, look, look on my uh, resume. Look, I did something else. Look, I got this T-shirt. I got that button and all that stuff. You know, I got this award or that. I, I was resume building with the idea that when I retired, I'd go be a chief somewhere. And it just didn't work out. Now I work at a community college <laughs> as a campus police officer and love it. Love it. It's amazing how that works. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's no responsibility on my shoulders. I love to interact with these young people and the teachers there. And uh, I work with a great group of people. Just love it. So back to the jack of all trades. Do you know what that <clears throat> that jack of all trades quote, you know, the whole thing? The no. whole one? So it's uh, the jack of all trades, but the master of none. And it says, but a jack of all trades is better than the master of one. That's actually the full quote. Wow, man. You threw some Joe Rogan stuff on you <laughs> without any of the doobie in the room, man. That's, that's pretty good. Nate, Nate can go get us some because <laughs> that's, cause that's what you know they say. He's a drug dealer, and that's, that's what they sell three here, counties so. away. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, so when you talked about, uh, you know, the trauma and all of that kind of stuff and navigating things and learning and, and, uh, and all that, <clears throat> like what uh, – like how, how are some of that, like when it come, when it came to, you know, you, you shared some issues where you were having some of the same problems at home, like with your kiddo that, that I was having, are you comfortable with sharing some of that or in like how that journey uh, and how that's son? been? Yeah. My son, yeah. um, my youngest son. Yeah. Um, he, he went through a rough t patch because he, um, was, was short for his age he, and all the other kids stood a head taller than him and he didn't even know it until he got in junior high and then he started getting teased and all of a sudden he knows it we're talking about the quarterback of the football team the point guard of the basketball team we're talking about the kid who is the second baseman or shortstop on the baseball team we're talking about a kid who placed at state as six years old he was an all-around athlete and nobody told him he was small until he got to junior high then the girls didn't notice him. The boys teased him. And so 
he was stunted in growth, and he was really upset about it. So his mom took him to an endocrinologist, which is a bone specialist, and he goes, well, we can make him grow. We have to give him this these meds. Well, the side effect of that is, yeah, he'll grow, but the side effect is he could become suicidal, so let us know right away. <coughs> that happened. Uh, the first time he took him, he shot up a couple of inches, but he was despondent, and I said, hey, look, you know, this is what happened. We're taking him off it. Okay. We took him off it. So his growth spurt stopped, and now he's in high school, and he's going through the same thing. It's his senior year in high school, and he's on this stuff. And then what it is, it's a hormone blocker. You don't realize how important estrogen is, fellas, until you don't get it no more to your brain, and it balances you out. And so um, he was on this estrogen blocker, and he came home. Well, he told his sister he spent the night with her that he was going to kill himself and he already had it planned out. And <laughs> it's hard to talk about, okay, um, how that hit me because I'd been at work. This is how God works, okay? I'd been at work. I had a really gentle boss at work that I was working for, and he told me about an FBI agent that had talked about his son committing suicide and left a note. And the note he led, left was, Dad, you were never here. Uh, I never knew if you loved me or not. I always just wanted to impress you, and you missed my graduation. You missed this, you missed this, you missed this. Bam, killed himself. And that FBI agent shared with everybody in that room um, how he would give it all back, his career, just to spend one more hour with his son. So when I heard that, it impacted me. And then when I heard my own son was thinking about that, it impacted me deeply. So... I retired. I just walked in. Well, actually, I called. I called my chief and said, "Hey, I gotta go, man. I can't. I can't be here. I gotta go. My son needs me." And I spent a year with him, holding him, crying with him, and we're the best pals now. But I almost lost him. It's terrible. Was rough and uh, none of it was worth it if I lost him. So, hopefully, God will send that person. The warning shot I talk about was that Colonel that told me about that story. That was God's warning shot, He was letting me know. And then my daughter was the second warning shot. The next one was going to be my son, he was going to kill himself. And so, thankfully, we took that serious. And we got him rehab. We got him. We got him back on his feet, and he's 100 percent now. We got him off that meds, but it took six months of no meds to uh, just get him to think about things other than killing himself. I mean, I'm telling you, it was terrifying to let him sleep alone, and he couldn't sleep. That was part of the depression. I mean, he'd lay there all night and look on his damn phone, and so um, God bless him. He's been a project, and I love him so much i love all my kids but he took a lot of my time and we're very close now thank god i'm always checking in on him my other son he went through some depression he was bullied he was a chubby kid and uh wasn't much of an athlete he was not very coordinated and he didn't have many friends and i didn't know about it i didn't know he was being bullied i asked him all the time he denied it and he went through the same thing he was very suicidal i just didn't know it so 
You think you know your kids, man. You have no idea what they're going through in public schools. What's that like going through that the second time all over again? Did it hit harder or did you feel like you're more prepared? Oh, no. Because I, I, um, I, I am terrified of that. I'm terrified of. They both happened at the same time. My other son didn't divulge it. My older son didn't divulge it to me until my youngest was, it was, he was out and it was rough. It was tough. But, um, God works in great mysterious ways and he saved him and, and he's here. So that's what matters. Yeah. And we, when you talk about that project thing, I can't tell you how many times I've shed tears and, you know, had to change my parenting. You know, I, I used to prioritize, like I, I, I was literally that cop that told my wife and, and uh, I'm not joking when I say this and I, it shames me now to say it, but I literally told my wife, I married you before I married the, or I married the job before I married you basically kind of letting her know where she stood. We all did that. Yeah. My dad told me that he said, women will come and go, but that job's forever. And how wrong that is, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, I, through this growth, I had to make a choice. And like when it had <laughs> there, I've talked about it on here before my youngest son decided to pick up a credit card and instead of turning mm-hmm. it in, as we've discussed mm-hmm. many times, he used it. Uh-huh. And you know, when it came to that, like my uniform came off, mm-hmm. my yep. badge came off 100%. and dad got put on. Yep. As a matter of fact, when the deputy came to my house and he read Miranda to my son, I said, you tell him you don't want to speak to him without a lawyer present. The right. deputy looks at me and he's like, seriously? I'm like, yeah, seriously, you can go get out of my house. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's important of like showing the kiddo, like I'm here for you, even in the bad times, my son even did in the, the bad same times. Thing. He, uh, he double cashed a check. You know how you can use <laughs> the back of it and you can do it on yeah. your phone and he double cashed it, but it was the check that I wrote. So <laughs> I, I didn't think it. that was going to pan out. <laughs> yeah. So, well, what happened was I happened to take him to the bank. And uh, at the time, I he was on an allowance. And at the time, he was using marijuana, too. And so he wasn't thinking real straight. And so I take him to the bank, and the teller is just taking forever. And she said, I, can you come inside for a second? I was like, oh, wow, what's going on? And I'm driving. That's like the officer saying, hey, can you step out here and talk to me for a minute yeah, on a traffic you mind, stop? You mind stepping out of the car, ma'am? <laughs> so I can get a better smell of your breath? Um, yeah, and so we walked in, and so the bank manager walks over and says, hey, this is fraud. You cashed it once, and blah, 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 and you did it again. Well, I didn't, uh, well, I didn't know, uh, but I thought I grabbed the wrong chair, but I didn't know. And she's like, well, we gave you the money. It's in your account, and you spent it. That is fraud. And I looked at him. I was mad as a freaking hornet. I can only imagine, because so was I. But I said, ma'am, I wrote that check. I'll make it right. And I bailed my kid out. But I got him in the car, and I said, you understand that you would not last 10 minutes in prison with your little ass? You know what they would do to you? Yes, Dad. Yes, Dad. I said, why are you fucking up like this? Why are you doing this? After all you've been through, why would you do this? You're lucky it was me that wrote the check. And he's like, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said, you have to get off that crap. You have to. And, you know, prayers and talking to him and just, you know, six months later, he's off it, as far as I know. 
So hopefully, you know, he learned his lesson. But that was a close call. But I know exactly what you're saying, man. I was I was 100% protecting him in there, and I did not make him ride the lightning, so to speak, with that situation. I took it from him. Well, we've had two times where Eli now has gone into, you know, the crisis mode. We're like, I'm, I'm ready to kill myself. Um, of like and how old is he? He's 14. And we've been dealing with it since he was in like fifth grade-ish of those thoughts. But like anymore, like especially without the biological father being in the picture, it was kind of a little more, you know, prevalent. Um, but yeah, that was the same thing too of like, again, that uniform came off and I was dad and I just called my sergeant like, Hey, my, my son's in trouble and I'm out. Like nobody's on the street. You might want to find somebody cause right I'm on. out. I'm right done. On. Um, you know, and but there there is a line there. You know, sometimes I'll cross it, sometimes I won't. It's very, to, you know, very situational totality of the circumstances. But I think that's the important key is I can't tell you how important being a dad is to me. Like, uh, you know, I'm like on my Instagram it says man of God, and then it says uh, husband, dad, cop, yeah. strong man, and that's kind of right how order. I see my how I see my life. And I tell my daughter the same thing. You need to find a man that loves God more than he loves you. And everything else will pan, pan, pan right. out. And my, I tell my boys the same thing about, uh, you know, getting a, getting a wife as well. But um, wonderful. it's it's one of those things where I, uh, I've i learned those lessons. At least I hope I have uh, early. And I hope that because uh, I, I am fearful. Not gonna lie, I'm fearful that I I've broken them beyond repair, well, and and I I'm I'm, I'm not just gonna... I'm just sitting here thinking about a biblical character named Absalom. Are you familiar no. with Absalom? He was the son of King David. King David slayed Goliath, but he had some children from different women, right? So they were all kind of like half brothers and sisters. Um. One of the brothers rapes um, uh, Absalom's sister, Tamar, and the father didn't do nothing about it. He, you know, that kid should have been uh, punished and really probably killed for what he did to his sister, defiled her. And he didn't do anything. So Absalom took the law in his own hand and he stabbed him. And then the dad should have done something to Absalom, but he didn't. So Absalom is vanished, and he's out there. He's living outside of the kingdom now, and Absalom creates a a uh, a band of brothers that he's going to take the kingdom from his dad. Um, Absalom was a handsome dude with long hair, and the Bible says that in, in so many words. He was the best-looking dude around. and um, But David loved Absalom. That's why he wouldn't. He wouldn't do anything to him. And then Absalom comes after him in his kingdom. And um, the men, uh, and he actually put David on the run for a while. And the, the king's army, uh, some high high person in the army, I don't remember his name, ends up catching and killing Absalom. And it was, you know, so the king said, you know, when, the, when he sent them out to capture him, he said, only don't harm a head, a hair on the head of Absalom. And the general didn't listen to that. <laughs> so when he gets back, he said, how's my boy? How's he doing? He goes, may all men who come against the king end as that young man did today. And so David fell on his face and just wept profusely 
uh, for Absalom and Absalom. You got to read the story, man. But you can see a father's love in that story and the the terrible loss that he faced having a child die before he died. It was terrible. Yeah. And he lost two. He actually lost three. He lost one, the one from Bathsheba that he had out of wedlock. But he lost three kids, man. I was, yeah, it's terrible stuff. That explained the back and forth of the Psalms. Right. You know, like one psalm is, right. God, you're great. And the next psalm is, why, why? do you forsake me? You why? Know, kind of things. What are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, man, we have we've been through a lot. Chewed up a lot of time, didn't we? Yeah. It's you been can, great. You can edit it all out. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just edit it down to the intro. Right. <laughs> of, of, and then we'll just post it. Mainly the... just edit my voice out and get it back to you. <laughs> actually, <laughs> That's actually, really all that matters. Actually, technically, I can actually do that. I, I can, can isolate your voice and just noise cancel it out. Right. <laughs> Believe well, me. I'm, I, I'm I just okay want to say I, I'm truly humbled that you, you know, cha- chose to come and, and be with us this evening and, and just share these things. And I know that there are people that are going to benefit from hearing it. You know, I mean, because let's face it, you again, you go from the beginning of your story of of big bad cop. Right. And I've been through all these things and like everybody looks at us like we're everything's rubber bounces right. off of us to no. to the end where, you know, you're talking about your struggles and, mm. and you're in here and you're feeling those emotions all over again. Because mm. been there, done that. I had to do my best to hold it together because I was right there with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I'm truly humbled. And I know that there's going to be. You know, a lot of people they they well, thank get you. something out of this. Thanks so. for having me. This thanks is, for being here. This is my first time ever, so I've never done one of these, but um, I'm glad to have done it in this format. Good to yeah. meet both of you. Well, nice after you this, too. after this, you're going to be so popular. You're going to be having autographs on all four people that deals. listen to your podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to have autographs. You're going to have book deals. You're going to have everything after this. Hey, man, this will take off after I'm long gone. They'll they'll rediscover this and they'll say, "Man, that guy." Yeah. Where'd he go? You're going to be the next Marcus Aurelius, man. They're going to be writing a book off of this podcast. Hey, not until I get mine done, because uh, I'm writing one. Oh, really? What is it? Like, what, Do you have a name for it yet? Um, it's called The Invasion. Yeah. It's a, it's about that family of uh, those those girls and um, their mom and brother. Do you have a publisher yet or anything? No. Okay. No. Well, whenever that comes out, you have to let us know. We'll I will. To, we'll put that on like our okay. social media and everything too. Okay. So, um, Very nice. That's kind of cool. So, also, we you usually kind of try to, and I always forget to do this. Um, wh- how how do people like reach out to you? Like, let's say mm-hmm. there's somebody that hears this, they have a question, or you know, they have something they want to ask you. Or they re- can find re- me through probably the best way to find me is through my personal email. I'll give it to you. Okay. W Howard KCKPD at Gmail dot com. Okay. And that's how they reach out to you. Mm-hmm. Cool. You don't have any social medias? You don't have everything? Mm-hmm. The Twitters? The Facebook? The I, I opened up a social media last week, which was um, Nextdoor app. I stirred up so much crap over one photo of <laughs> some vandalism that my neighbors were ready to kill each other. And so I said, I'm never, I'm getting off this platform. <laughs> uh, so I'm taking that down. I, I was a huge failure on that deal. Uh, even though I found myself mediating over something very simple. And uh, and then I'm on um, LinkedIn under Bill Howard. Okay. And so you're, you're working for the community college and you're also teaching for KU. Yeah. Those are, and those are your two professions right now, like professionally, right? Right. right. And so uh, are, you, are you looking to maybe like retire <clears throat> again, travel the world kind of thing? Or? Mm-hmm. My wife would like to assist the RV around the world, but no. 
She'd be happy if I was an 18 wheel truck driver just to get out of the house. There you go. No. There you go. You could have like a big old belly out there where it like touches the steering wheel and everything. I already do. Yeah, but what I'm saying where it touches the steering wheel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You get one of those knobs. Nice and sexy. Yeah. You'd be nice and sexy that way. You have the shifter like way up here in the air. You have to use the shift. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Well, let me give the shout out to uh, KU. They've been great to work for and with. And KLETC has been flawless they've got the greatest classrooms now and um they just take care of us and they really are and ku's playing a big role in this they really are reforming law enforcement uh, with these courses we're teaching um you know i i joke about it but i I, i'm really not joking when i say we're going to keep kansas from burning down because of these courses and leadership and, uh, you know, I focus on frontline supervision because I really think that that's where the battle's being fought, won and lost right there. When you think about George Floyd, was there a sergeant there? Amen. Amen. If there had been a sergeant there, would we have had all the riots? I don't think so. I think a good sergeant would have showed up and said, hey, man, what are you doing? Get off the man's neck. Yep. Now, would George Floyd have died anyway from the fentanyl abuse? Perhaps COVID, but the rest of the world wouldn't have burned down. Right. It was the lack of empathy in that man. You can't, you can't be a cop and have no empathy for others. You've got no business with that badge. Yep. And that's okay. We can move you somewhere else. You can go be a computer geek or you can do anything. Just don't be around people. Don't even be a taxi driver, man. (laughs) If you don't have empathy, (laughs) go find an office and sit in it somewhere. And that's fine. There's a place for you too. But uh, you can't you can't come out here and be one of us, man. If you don't have empathy, right? I think it's a great place to end it. Mm-hmm. You want All to right, take, guys, take out the uh, do the outro. Huh? You want oh, to do the outro? Yeah, I got it. Well, guys, uh, we want to thank Bill for coming on. It was a it was a very good conversation. So I had a lot of fun, and uh, thanks for listening to the higher points. Um, we would appreciate it if you guys would give us some uh, likes and shares on social media. You know, we. Uh, We appreciate you guys listening, and we hope you have a good week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. We'll catch up with you next time. We'll see you. Thank you.